If you brought your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. If you didn't bring your Bible, don't feel bad. Uh, we have made provision for you. All the verses that I'll be reading today will be located on the screens so that you can follow along reading those. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. We'll begin reading in verse 20 and we'll read down through verse number 26. If you're ready for the word of God, say amen. 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 Verse number 20. This is why we assemble on this special day because of this phrase right here. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And he's become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. I want you to read out loud with me that last verse, verse 26. Would you do that? Ready? Begin. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The title of my message today is taken from the first three words of that verse, the last enemy. For the past several weeks, I've been reading through 1 Corinthians 15, knowing that I want to pick some section out of this great chapter to preach on Resurrection Sunday. And this last phrase, this, this, this verse that we just read was just intriguing to me. So as I began to study the last few weeks, I thought, you know what? This is going to be the message for Resurrection Sunday. And I'm going to tell you what the Bible means when it says the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Very simply, I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to start by talking about the reality of our enemy, and that is death. Then I'm going to talk about death's destruction and how that comes about. Then I'm going to close my sermon by talking about the significance of death's destruction. Why is that so important? It's because it affects us all in two totally different ways. First, let's start by talking about death's reality. Now, I know on Easter Sunday, this isn't very positive news. But the truth is the truth. Uh, death is your enemy. And it's coming after you. It's coming after me. The statistics of death remain the same today. One out of every one will die. What I found is that when it comes to the average person, it takes a while for this reality of death to sink in. I mean, for the first 20 or 30 years of your life, you don't think about it that much. Every year you're getting stronger and stronger and smarter and smarter and better looking for some of us. You're getting more competent in your job with every decade. It's like the fullness of your life is ahead of you. So for the young person, death is kind of an unreal concept. You just rarely ever think about it. But somewhere in your mid-30s, and that's where I'm at right now, I'm 36 years of age, you start to get this little hint that death is your enemy, that death is after you. You know how I know? Because your body starts hurting in the morning. And you have to stretch before you do anything active. 
For me, the realization like you, it, like me, it, it might come about during something as simple as playing shortstop in a softball game. You know, there's a grounder over second base. So, so you dig your cleats into the ground, you lower your body, you move towards second base with your gloves stretched out. You're going to grab the ball, then you're going to pivot, then you're going to throw over to first base like you've always done. But to your utter amazement, the ball goes three inches past your glove and rolls into center field. And you think to yourself, how does that happen? I always get those grounders over second base. How did I miss this one? Then it dawns on you, you're getting old. Your mind wrote a check your body couldn't cash. You slowed a step. Maybe the hint of death comes when you look in the mirror. Ooh. You see the lines in your face, the gray in your hair, the waddles in your neck. You're laughing because it's a reality. For us men, you go from seeing a built bod to a dad bod. One person said, you know, you're getting old when your back goes out more than you do. Another person said, you know, you're getting old when almost everything hurts and what doesn't hurt doesn't work. Or when you've been there and done that, but you don't remember what that was. Anybody ever feel like you're losing your mind sometimes? Sometimes it's just on your birthday when the hint of death sinks in. I mean, you, you, you think, man, I'm old, especially when they bring out the cake with the candles and the candles cost more than the birthday cake. You blow out the candles and oxygen masks drop from the ceiling. On a more serious note, maybe the reality of this enemy called death sinks in when your parents die. When they're no more a part of your world, you suddenly begin to realize that your, too, your, your time too is going to come. Or when someone, maybe your own age, gets sick and dies. Someone you grew up with, someone you went to school with, someone who was in your wedding, someone who raised their kids at the same time you raised your kids. You see, at some point, for various reasons, this troubling thought begins to nag at the corners of your mind. I'm going to die too. I only have so many years left and then I will be no more. And what I found is that most people in the world today can't cope with that realization. It's too much to handle. So you know what they do? They ignore it. They put it out of their minds. They go on as if it's never going to happen. And ignoring the reality of death is a good strategy at first, but it just doesn't seem to do much good. William Sorian, a writer, said this as cancer spread through his vital organs. Everybody's got to die. But I've always believed an exception to be made in my case. Now what? You see, at some point, you can't ignore death's reality. It's coming. Others try to cope with the thought of death through humor, don't they? They try to laugh it off. They try to joke it away so it doesn't get too near to them. Like, like Woody Allen, the famous producer that said, hey, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Perhaps the guy that said, when I die, I want to go peacefully in my sleep like my grandfather, not screaming and tear like the passengers in his car. <laughs> the columnist that wrote, once I realized how expensive funerals are, I began to exercise and watch my diet. But I found that the only benefit of exercising every day is that you die healthier. Eat well, stay fit, die anyway. Can I get an amen? <laughs> I ate a donut on the way to church today. So there's humor as a coping mechanism to kind of at least blunt the reality of death. But then you know what else I found is that some people in this world just look death in the face and try to fight it. 
I'm talking about the 80-year-old that still runs marathons, who still grabs the heaviest suitcase to unload from the car, who still drives 20 hours across the country to visit you. Those folks will never slow down. They'll never give in. They'll never quit. They'll never retire. But, but listen, regardless of how we react to death, whether we ignore it or whether we put it off with humor or whether we fight it, listen to me, friend, it still remains a relentless, inevitable enemy. It keeps getting closer and closer, doesn't it? Until it finally wins. And ultimately, you and I, we don't have any power against it. Here's my question. Why is that the case? Why do we have such a relentless, unstoppable, unbeatable enemy in death? What do we do to deserve this? Well, the text tells us it's because of one thing. You know what it is? Sin. The sin of just one man, the first man. Look at verse 21 and 22. For since by man came death. Who's the man? For as in Adam all die. Death became our enemy when Adam sinned. Most in here would be familiar with the first man and first woman in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. They were perfect in every way, put into a perfect environment. And God told them, you can have whatever you want, but you cannot partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what is the one tree they partook from? That tree that they weren't supposed to. And at that moment, when Adam sinned, ever since that day, we have shared in Adam's sinful DNA. We have all been born with an inclination to sin and we have acted on that inclination again and again and again. That's the bad news. Because of sin, we are powerless against a relentless, inescapable, universal death. But here's the good news. That's not the end of the story. I said, that's not the end of the story. The good news is that someone has stepped in front of us to destroy the seemingly unstoppable enemy. And that's where we get to the second point. Death's destruction. Our text tells us that while one man's sin created the enemy called death, another man's sacrifice destroys it. This is amazing. Verse 21. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, but watch this, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This is amazing. Here's what the verse is saying. Death makes the initial claim, but Christ wins the ultimate victory. So what Adam brought on the entire human race, Christ removed from the entire human race. Because of Adam all die, but because of Christ all will be made alive. That's amazing. But did you really catch what I said? Because of Christ, all will be made alive. The whole human race. Every person who has ever lived and died, every person will be made alive again. That means death is destroyed. Watch this. Not just for believers, but for the entire human race. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all will be made alive. Alive. It's important to get a hold of this because sometimes we Christians have the wrong idea. Sometimes we think that it's just believers who are going to be raised from the dead. That's not the case. Unbelievers are going to be raised from the dead as well. Buddhists will someday be resurrected. And Muslims will someday be resurrected. And atheists will someday be resurrected. Just as Adam universally brought death on all mankind, so Christ has universally um, brought resurrection or made resurrection a possibility, a reality for everyone. 
You know what that means? It means that the issue is not whether everyone's going to be resurrected. They are, and I'm going to show you. The issue is what will happen to you after you're resurrected. Now, we're going to get, that, get to that in a moment. But for the time being, I want to be super clear. Death has been destroyed. And everyone who has ever lived is going to be raised from the dead and made alive again for all eternity. Our text, 1 Corinthians 15. Other passages of Scripture, which I'll show you in the book of Revelation, tell us that there's a sequence to how these resurrections will happen. The resurrection of the dead will happen in stages. And I need you to study with me for a couple minutes. In verse 23 and 24, it says this. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. So Paul says every man will be resurrected. And he says this, in his own order. Now he's talking about a sequence. A progression. He's talking about stages. In fact, that phrase, every man in his own order, is a military phrase. It's used to speak of wave after wave of troops that would strike at an enemy. The idea of that phrase is of advancing companies of an army, one after another, attacking the enemy until he's totally destroyed. The verse says that first Christ strikes, and then the first fruits. And with that word, first fruits, he went from using a military image to using an agricultural one. He's speaking of the sequential, progressive blossoming of the harvest. He says Christ is the first fruits, the first to emerge in the spiritual harvest. He is then followed by the first fruits of those who have died in Christ, those who have been saved before they died. It's just like a plant, just like a rose bush that lies dormant for a while almost like it's asleep, but then the spring comes and that's the season we're in and the buds begin to come out one at a time and it's beautiful. So goes the sequence of the resurrection. Follow this. Christ is the first. That's what we're celebrating today. Christ has been resurrected. It's done. The first fruits from the dead. He's the first telling blow against the enemy of death. He is the first sign that our great enemy is going to be destroyed. That first step has already been taken. Then, after an interval of time, which we are currently in that interval of time right now, a second blow to death is going to come. And someday Christ will return to earth. Could be today, by the way. Bible says a trumpet will sound. We who belong to him will be raised to eternal life. We who have trusted him as our Savior will not stay dead. The Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. Now I want you to understand the sequence. First Christ will rise. Then after an interval of time, he will come again. That's what we're waiting for. And those who belong to him at his coming will follow. But then there's a third resurrection. Because after another interval of time, after his second resurrection, there's going to be about a thousand years. And then the events of the end of the world as we know it will take place. And the rest of humanity will be made alive. The third wave of, res of resurrections will begin as Satan is bound for a thousand years. And afterwards, all unbelievers are brought back to life where their final judgment begins. The book of Revelation gives us a fuller picture. It says this, and I saw an angel 
come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. But the rest of the dead, this is the unbelievers, live not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the progression that Paul's referring to in our text. Christ first, then those that believed in him will be second. And a thousand years later, the third progression will take place. And those who did not believe in Jesus Christ before they died will be raised from the dead and they will face their final judgment, which, by the way, is very, very serious. And here's what that final judgment looks like. And I saw a great white throne. And him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see what happens? Those who resisted Christ, those who had opportunities to accept him, but did not accept him, just like the opportunity you are being given today on Resurrection Sunday. Those who said no to Jesus time after time after time, and they died not having been saved, will later be raised from the dead. And at that time, they will be judged. They'll be judged from two books. The first is the book of their works. It's going to be opened. It'll list everything they've done, their sins, their lies, their lust, everything for which they deserve judgment. Then another book will be opened, the book of life. A search will be made if their name, to see if their name is written in that book, to see if they ever trusted Christ as their personal Savior before they died, to see if they trusted His death as the complete and final payment for their sins. And if their name, pay attention please, is not in the book of life, these resurrected unbelievers, the Bible says, will join Satan in the lake of fire. Where they too will live in constant torment forever and there will be no escape. Remember, there's no such thing as death anymore. Death is thrown into the lake of fire and destroyed. At this point, a new kind of death takes over and it's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. It's a death where you're wide awake. And it's a conscious, eternal torment apart from the presence of God. And that brings us to our third and final point in the conclusion of my sermon. Death's significance. See, we've learned that, that in this life, death is our enemy. But the enemy is going to be destroyed. Everyone, believers and unbelievers, are going to be raised back to life, never to die again. But here's the significance of death and the most significant question that I will ask all day long. When this happens, here it is, of which resurrection will you be a part? Will you be a part of the first one? Those who belong to Christ, 
Those who will rise at his coming to live with him forever, not because you got baptized, not because you're a member of our church, not because you're a good community member or a nice guy or a nice lady, not because you were benevolent and generous and kind. No, no, no. You have come in Christ because you believe that you were a sinner and you trusted in his payment on the cross for your sin. And you have a testimony. You have a story. You can go back to a place where you were when, when you were introduced to the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. And you, without a shadow of a doubt, can say this. I remember when I called upon Christ to save my soul. Will you be part of that first resurrection? Or will you be part of the second one? The one at the end of a thousand years, those who refused to submit to Jesus in this life, those who resisted him, those who will be resurrected to live in a place of conscious torment day and night forever and ever. My friend, please hear me. You want to be part of the first resurrection. The Bible says blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. I should have put the second part of the verse that I meant to up there. You know why? Because it says, on such, the second death hath no power. This is what Easter is all about. Because Christ was risen, you too can be made alive to live with Him forever. You can be part of that first resurrection. And the best part about that is this, the second death, that, that eternal torment in hell will have no power in your life. Yes, death will be a reality for all of us. We will one day stop breathing and they will have our funeral. But the significance of death, if you're saved, is that you get eternal life in a real place called heaven. A place with streets of gold and gates of pearl and walls of jasper. A place of utter perfection. A place so innocent that the Bible says in heaven the lion will lay down with the lamb and violence will not be known ever again. A place so pure and holy that sin can never even sneak its way into the gates of heaven and you'll never be tempted to do wrong ever again. A place so wonderful that injustice and prejudice and disease will have no power and have no presence. A place where there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death. It'll all be passed. It's going to be an amazing place. Don't just take my word for it. Look at Revelation that says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, he's the one that wrote Revelation. He saw the holy city. God allowed him to see it. New Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven. It's going to be beautiful because it's prepared as a bride Adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and be and shall be with them, shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. I love this. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. No more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. What a promise. What an opportunity. After you take your last breath on earth, heaven can be your reality. However, as good as that sounds, and it's good, there is one condition. The only people in this room who will escape hell and live in heaven are those who have first been saved. Saved. Rescued. Delivered. It's like if you were drowning in the ocean 
and you saw a boat coming to save you, you had no hope without that boat. That's what salvation means. Rescued, delivered, saved. You cannot and will not go to heaven when you take your last breath, please hear me, unless you are saved. So how do you get saved? I always tell people it's as easy as ABC. Number one, you admit you are a sinner. I don't mean that you mentally assent to the fact that, yeah, I do wrong, I make mistakes, I have shortcomings. I mean you understand the depravity of your own soul. You understand that it's your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. You understand, you understand that if you were just left to your own decisions, you would go out into the deep end of sin. You understand that. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know what the glory of God is? It's, it's like the bullseye of a target. It's the perfection of God. And every day of your life, many of you are trying to hit that bullseye. And you're kind and you're benevolent and you're generous and you're religious and you pray and you give. You always go back to that day when your parents told you they baptized you as a baby and you're like, man, I'm trying to hit that bullseye. But there's never been a day where you've hit the bullseye. You know how I know that? Because there's no perfect human being. You might have gotten real close sometimes, but you've at least thought one wrong thought a day. Maybe said a wrong thing. Did a wrong thing. Looked at the wrong thing. Went to the wrong place. You've fallen short. Do you, do you understand that? Let her be. You believe Jesus died for your sin. For the wages of sin is what? It's death. That's not speaking of physical death. That's the second death. That's the spiritual death. Being cast into the lake of fire where you will be physically alive but spiritually dead and feeling the torment that Satan will feel for all of eternity. That's what you deserve. He said the wages, like your paycheck. You deserve death. But the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, friend, this is the good news of the gospel. This is what Easter is all about. It's a gift. It ceases to be a gift if you have to do anything to earn it. Literally, it's a gift. What do you have to do to get a gift at Christmas? You just got to receive it. You just got to take it. What do you got to do to receive this gift? Let her see, not just believe in your heart, but call on Jesus to save you. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be, say the next word, please. Saved. It's like if you were in a world of trouble, danger, and you had to call 911. You've been taught since you were a tiny kid how to dial 911. And you call them. And here's where a lot of people get nervous about getting saved because they think they have to say the perfect prayer. They're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't understand it. I don't want to pray in front of people. I don't want to say anything else. I just, I'm going to mess up. I'm not good at talking. And, and, and Here's what I always say. If you were in a dangerous situation and you called 911, you wouldn't be rehearsing what you're going to tell them before you call them. You would be a blubbering fool. All of us, even the most well-spoken in here, would be stuttering. You're scared, you're nervous, you're uptight, and the dispatcher on the other side of the line, they're not going to be cruel to you. They're not going to say, hey, gather your composure and give me a call back whenever you can speak right. You know what? You're going to say something like this. I need help. 
What's your address? I don't know. I just need help. Well, I got to know where. I just need help. And when you call upon the Lord to be your Savior, here's what you're saying. Help. I can't get to heaven by myself. I've tried living a good life. I've tried going down the benevolent path. I've tried trusting in religious sacraments. I tried just going to church and turning over a new leaf, but then I returned to my old habits and my old addiction and my old behaviors. I can't do it. God, would you help me? That's what it sounds like to get saved. So as we close our message today, I'm, I'm going to invite you to do that. I won't put you on the spot. I, I want to help you. I want to help you do that in your own seat. And simply, here's what that's going to look like. I want to just be ultra clear. I'm going to lead you in a moment in a prayer. This is after I ask the entire audience to bow their head and close their eyes. So it's a very private moment, respectful moment. Only reason I ask you to bow your head and close your eyes is because this is really in between you and God, not you and me, not you and the person next to you. And I want, I want to respect everyone's spiritual decisions and the privacy of those things. And so... I'm going to just ask who knows they're, that they're saved today to raise their hands. Who, who doesn't know that they're saved today to raise their hands. No one's looking but me. And then I'm going to have those who don't know. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. Please listen to me. It's not the words of the prayer that save you. It's your heart. It's you believing in Jesus Christ. As the only way you can go to heaven. And then just calling on him. God help me. Save me. This could be the day of your salvation. So would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? Before the instruments start playing, and I'll have them start playing in a moment, I want to ask you a question. I'll ask you to be very honest today. Would you be part of that first resurrection? Because you're saved. And you got a testimony. you got a story of your salvation. Doesn't mean you're perfect. Doesn't mean they came to church having your act together today, but it does mean you can go back to a place where you called upon God to save you and you meant it. Raise your hand today. Raise your hand, please. As a testimony to God. What a blessing. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Let me tell you this, that once you get saved, you only have to get saved one time. It's very important to realize that. Just because you did wrong this week doesn't mean you need to get resaved today if you've already been saved God, is, he seals you. He seals you until the day you die. You're safe. But if you don't have that story and you want to say, I just want to be honest with you, Pastor, in front of you and God, I don't know. You don't have to hold your hand up, but would you be courageous enough just to put it up real quick and put it right back down? Thank you. Who else? I don't know if I'm going to be part of that first resurrection. If I were to die today, I'd take my last breath. I'm not confident of where I'll spend eternity. One has raised their hand. Who else? Raise your hand, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate your honesty, sir. Who else? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I don't want to hurry. Thank you. Thank you, sir, in the back. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Who else? I don't know. I don't know. One more opportunity. Pastor, if I'm being honest, I don't know if I'm saved. One more. And at least three raised their hand. Here's what I want to do. The instruments will play here in just a few minutes. And as that they play, I'm confident that Christians will 
come forward to an altar today and set the example and, and just thank God for saving their soul and they'll worship the Lord on their knees. That's what we do at Fellowship Baptist. We respond to the preaching by coming to an altar. You don't have to at all. No pressure. But a lot of the Christians will today. As they come, I'm going to ask Brother Mike, our worship leader, to come in front of the remembrance table here. And after I lead, uh, you that raise your hand in a prayer, and as the piano plays, Christians are coming. I'm going to ask you that prayed this prayer, whether you raised your hand just now or not, if you prayed this prayer and you meant it, I want, I want you to come and shake Brother Mike's hand. Tell him, I got saved today. Let him know about that. Why, Pastor Tyler? Because when you call upon the name of the Lord, you become his child. Truly, you're not ashamed of it. And so you're going to come and you're not going to have to say anything out loud. We're not going to pray you in front of people, but we want to pray with you and help you in these beginning stages of your Christian life. So with those that aren't saved, Christians, you'd be very respectful now. You repeat after me silently in your heart. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. And I know I deserve hell. But I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that he was buried. But that he rose again. And the best I know how, I am calling upon Jesus to save me. So Jesus Christ, would you help me today? Would you be my savior today? Would you forgive me of my sin today and be the Lord of my life? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it, every head bowed and every eye closed, you know you did. Would you just slip your hand up real quick so I can see it? If you prayed that prayer, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Who else prayed that prayer? You, you prayed that prayer. You meant it. You just, thank you, sir, in the back. Thank you. Everybody stand to your feet. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Piano will play. Christians, you come right now.